Serb Alfred, the team of the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. With regard to my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I don't know if it's entirely accurate, objectively accurate, to say that he is America's most beloved baseball writer. However, it feels right to say that he is America's most beloved baseball writer. He's a contributor, perhaps an editor at, I don't know, definitely a contributor at Grantland.com. Uh, he's author of uh, a number of books, for example, Up, Up, and Away, an examination of the Montreal Expos, uh, and uh, also makes appearances, it seems, now on ESPN's Baseball Tonight. He's Jonah Carey. And while uh, Jonah Carey, of course, is entirely qualified to discuss uh, all matters relevant to baseball, uh, the pastime, perhaps, is what you call it, uh, that is not why I've asked him to be here. In fact, you will note that the title of this edition of the program is uh, something along the lines of A Phone Call to Jonah Carey from Montreal. And this is uh, purposely ambiguous, this title. Uh, Because on the one hand, from Montreal, Jonah Carey himself is from Montreal. That's one part of the ambiguous title. The other part is that the phone call itself is from Montreal. Uh, if you've listened to the program recently, you know that I'm currently staying uh, with my wife in the, the northwestern part of the Myelin neighborhood in Montreal, Canada. And I, I've called Jonah because I this is a fantastic city. It is a fantastic city. If you love the exoticism of foreign countries, but also the familiarity of North America, this is a good city for you. If you are... Um, if you like the challenge of attempting to speak a foreign language, but do not, but also do not mind launching into English at any point, this is a great city for you. If you uh, are the sort of person who, who who tends to like good food and drink, but also do not have a lot in the way of cash dollars, this is also a good city for you. Uh, there are a number of questions to be asked of this city, and, and, and I've wanted to ask them to someone. I asked them of Jonah because you know Jonah. I know Jonah, and uh, he seems to be probably a relatively reasonable sort of man. The other thing is he grew up here. He grew up. Uh, he grew up in Montreal. His family. His family's from Montreal, and I wanted to get an understanding. For example, what was it like living uh, in a time when there were separatists here? That's interesting. How do you know when to begin a conversation in English or French? Is a question I also asked Jonah. And uh, we, we cover many other subjects. It's a, um, I have a lot of fun doing it. If you like Jonah Carey's work ever and you want to hear him speak candidly on the place from, uh, from which he hails, this is the way to do it. Here's another, here's another reason why this edition of the program is significant besides Jonah Carey's appearance is it also represents – this is episode 586. This represents the first episode that has been sponsored willingly – by a company, by a company, and the company in this case has produced uh, an application. It's called Draft. Draft is a is a is a daily fantasy sports application. Are you familiar with FanDuel, for example? Are you familiar with DraftKings? This is along the same lines, except it uh, it is the first application, the first daily fantasy sports application that has been built strictly as an app. It's available right now uh, for iOS for, uh, for for your iPhone. It will be available very soon. For Android, and the easiest way to think about it is uh, is sort of words with friends for fantasy sports. You contact a friend, you conduct a snake draft uh, just for five players each, and those are your players for the day. They play in games. You accrue fantasy fantasy points. Maybe you beat your friend. You say, "I beat you," and you feel that's the sense of pride that wells up inside of you. Anytime you can make your friend feel bad, that that joy inside of you. Anytime someone you love and have loved for some time feels bad you can have that experience or maybe if you lose you could say well tomorrow is another day so this gives you hope this gives you that sort of hope perhaps an illusion but it's hope so what you do you could play for money 
You can play for actual money. You can win money from your friends, from strangers, or you can play just for fun. You just pick five players. There, You can do it for Major League Baseball now. There's also NFL, college football, NBA, NHL, etc. Think of all those sports as well. It is called Draft. You can you can find it on the App Store. You can find it if you go to PlayDraft.com. And then once you're in there, you can also play against, for example, Carson Sestouli. You can beat Carson Sestouli, and you can feel the sort of joy what it's like to beat someone who's actually paid to write about baseball. Uh, and the, the joy will be short-lived, though, I promise you, because you will realize that I'm an imbecile. I am an imbecile, and I am smart enough to play this game, though. That's the point. So what is this? That's a, that's a real sponsor we have. Playdraft.com, go there, get the draft app uh, from the iTunes store if you want to do that. W- what else we have here is is a, is a real guest. We have Jonah Carey of Grandland.com uh, p- appearing on what program? Fangraphs Audio. And appearing when? When? Right now. Mostly good. Uh, working hard over here, trying to balance a couple of gigs at once, and uh, it's good. August is when things start to get exciting, and we'll get to the September pennant races and uh, fun teams, fun storylines. Is that what they say in the biz? Oh, all, <laughs> all fun stuff. Yeah. Are you have you crafted any narratives recently? I have crafted a lot of narratives. I've determined that uh, Alex Anthopoulos' moxie and gumption has prompted the Blue Jays to start a Canadian dynasty, uh, which, you know, they're not even in the playoffs yet, but I'm just calling it right now. And, uh, no, that's, that's fun, and, and the Cubs are really interesting and exciting, and the Mets and the Astros and Pirates and teams that are not thought of as traditional powers are not just playoff contenders, but World Series contenders. There's a scenario where one of those five teams could easily win it, and, and any one of those five would be an unbelievable story. Yeah, I think actually, so one of the disappointments of, I, I guess it would be the last two baseball seasons, is that, I suppose with the exception of the Royals last year, and maybe I'm thinking more of the playoffs from the year before that, all of the the teams, the most notable teams, the ones that hadn't made it for a while, you know, the Pittsburgh Pirates, of course, um, were, were certainly among these at the Baltimore Orioles. All, I think all, f- like, four of those teams were summarily eliminated immediately. And then you were just left with the boring old teams. Um, but yeah, pretty much. So hopefully that doesn't happen this year is the idea. I mean, you know, I don't, I have a hard time begrudging the Giants or, you know, the Cardinals have had a lot of success or whatever. I mean, there is an argument to be made that they're unlikable precisely because they win that much and there's this whole cardinal backlash about whatever, but I mean, they're well-constructed good teams and, you know, they earn where they got and whatever, but, but sure, I mean, I, I tend to gravitate, because I don't have a favorite team especially, I tend to gravitate toward underdogs and, uh, you know, just interesting things to follow and then all those teams, uh, this year would make for interesting stories. I mean, the Mets play New York. I don't know if they qualify as an underdog necessarily, although when you're owned by the Wilpon family, I think you automatically become an underdog. And their fans have just been kicked in the face so long, and, and, and I just, I don't know, I have a little bit of empathy for something like that, I guess. So, you know, the Jays obviously the longest playoff drought, the Cubs obviously the longest championship drought, uh, the Mets having not made the playoffs for nine years, the Pirates were out in the wilderness for a while, though now they've been good for a couple of years. And man, the Astros, that's gotta be one of, you know, if they can even win a division, never mind the World Series, that would qualify as one of the better turnarounds 
in recent baseball history, given where they were. So, yeah, you know, those would be all unlikely suspects. And, and the playoffs are crapshoot to some extent, but in terms of talent, I think that any one of those teams, you can make a case for them going deep into the playoffs, and that's what they're starting pitching. The Jays are just loaded talent-wise. Uh, the Cubs obviously have that young lineup, which is exciting, and Arietta and Lester, the Pirates are a pretty good complete team. And whatever faults the Astros had, it feels like they addressed a lot of them at the deadline. They've been losing a lot lately, but still, they got Gomez and Fires and Casimir and made themselves a lot better. Okay, Jonah, Jonah, we're not here to talk about this. Yeah. I think you know what we're here to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. I know. You approached me, and, and then because you have the eclectic uh, podcast where you have uh, your finger on the pulse of literally 12 hipsters, then uh, let's get, let's, you know. Yes, let's it's true. We, it's, an, it's a small but important <laughs> audience. Uh, it I, is. So it's notable, in fact, you're in Bristol. That is actually where the Sestoulis began in the United States. Oh. Yeah. I did not know that. That is, yes. Yeah, the Sestoulis, they landed, I don't know. Yeah, they landed where everyone else landed in uh, Ellis Island. But then they went to Bristol because it's a natural destination for anybody, as I'm sure that you are finding out. But I currently am resigned temporarily, two and a half weeks, in uh, the place where I don't know if the carries started here, uh, but they at least have spent some time here, it seems. I would have to imagine because you're a native of this, the city of Montreal, where I'm currently staying. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, if we're going to talk about family history, so basically my, on my mom's side, uh, my uh, maternal grandmother, who's no longer with us, was born in New York, but made her way to Montreal as a kid, and she was born in 1910, so that puts her in that decade. This is a lot, so it's 100 years ago that she was in Montreal, uh, and my grandfather on that side as well. And uh, on my dad's side, my dad's family is Hungarian, so they were in Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution in, uh, that what it's called? I think that's what it's called, in 1956, uh, when the Soviets came to town and, and uh, chased everybody away. They fled and made it to Canada right at that 56, early 57 period. So my dad was born in Hungary, um, but uh, grew up in Montreal. And, uh, yeah, that is my background. Uh, born and raised. I'm not an expo saying because I'm a masochist. Well, maybe I am. But uh, it is a geographical tie as well. And it's a cool thing, I think, for people who've never been there especially. And I find that people not from the East Coast. You know, if you're from New York or Boston, pretty good chance you've been there for something, a bachelor party, a weekend or whatever. But if you're from... Denver or Portland or San Diego or whatever, you might not have necessarily been there. It's an incredible place. It's very, I mean, you're getting a feel for it, I would imagine now, but it's very cosmopolitan. They're very progressive in many ways. The neighborhoods are also different and eclectic. Has kind of, you know, people talk about the European feel, which is true, but it also just has these pockets. You know, there's a big Jewish community and there's a big Greek community and there's a big Italian community. It's this really neat melting pot of a lot of things. What I like to tell people uh, who are not from there is I can't do it because I suck at accents, but everybody in Montreal, no matter what, if their English is their first language or French or something else, speak with this strange, not like mine, I guess, but most people speak with this really weird accent. It's this nondescript, where are you from exactly kind of thing that everybody kind of adopts, uh, which is pretty neat, and, and I kind of forget about it, and then when I go back there, you just get that. And it's, everybody sounds like they're kind of one quarter Greek, one quarter Italian, one quarter French speaking, one quarter something. I don't know what it is. So it makes for this really, really neat mix and, and a very interesting uh, group of people. And, you know, I don't imagine that I'll move back there anytime soon, but I love going back. And, and I'm thrilled that you're there for a couple of weeks. I'm actually excited. Being there in the summertime is one of the best experiences you can have. Yeah, I will say that uh, both my wife and I are ab- uh, just absolutely in love with the city. We're, we are on... Uh, I, you know the city pretty well. Now, what in what neighborhood did you grow up in, or were you just outside the city? 
So you're, you know, you were telling me that you're on Bobian, so that puts you probably northeast of downtown. I was in the western suburbs, so not far, like maybe 12 minutes from downtown, 15 minutes from downtown, nothing too far out. It's a pretty compact city in some ways, uh, even though there are some outlying suburbs that are further out. Uh, but, you know, by the time I got to, <laughs> because Montreal doesn't really enforce a drinking age, by the time I got to about age 15, I was spent quite a bit of time uh, downtown frequenting various establishments and, uh, and definitely got a feel for the heart of the city. Right, yeah, and so it's a uh, it, even where I am. So, uh, um, I, it's uh, it's flooded with restaurants right where I am. Uh, both of a sort yeah. of because uh, I'm right on the border of Little Italy where I am, where we're staying. Yep. So yep. I mean, obviously there's good food there, uh, but yep. there's and there's, there's sort of all manner of restaurants. There's some sort of more like uh, newer farm to table sort. There's sort of like French yep. uh, kind of wine barry type things. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, uh, if you want smoked meat, uh, you know, just a few blocks from oh, yes. from the king of it, uh, not not. Oh, uh, that's right. You're near. So you're near Schwartz's. Uh, no, uh, further from Schwartz's, closer to Le Roi, the smoked meat. But, uh, but oh, okay. The literal, the literal king. The literal, yeah. the literal king. Yeah, but not yeah. far, not far from Schwartz's either. That would not be a very far walk. Um, yeah. All that stuff is. Is, ama- is is amazing, and I guess, but uh, as someone who's coming here and enjoying it. How the city um, came to be is interesting to me, and especially, and I guess the, the advantage for me of speaking to you is because you're an articulate person, and I already know you. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested in just in in what it's like, what it has been like growing up here, because that is there. There is still some. You, you talked about the accent. Um, there is sort of like the the thick Quebecois accent which you hear, and then there's this sort of yes. uh, Montreal variation of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I, there are a bunch of things I don't necessarily understand in the city, and one of them is this: is if you walk into a business, say, or a restaurant, how do you know in what language to begin speaking? Because I think that you can't really go wrong with French, but I also see people just go up to a counter and immediately start speaking English. And I know if you did that in France, uh, you would get a, a look from the person at the bar, maybe because they don't speak mm-hmm. English, but it might also be right. that they do speak English and they just think it's rude that you've begun in English, but they do not get that sense necessarily here. Well, it's a bilingual city. I mean, it is majority French. It's about 70-30 roughly, but it's absolutely bilingual, and uh, most people do speak both languages. Uh, to give some background, and, and you know this, but for listeners, uh, it is mandatory to learn French in school, mandatory, no matter what. Even if you go to a private uh, parochial school of some kind, you're not getting out of it. You still have to learn it. Uh, I, I happened to go to school where I learned, this is not my Sunday school, this is my school school, elementary school and high school, English, French, and Hebrew every day for 11 years, which is weird and not necessarily all that useful when living in the United States. But, you know, it was something you develop a little bit of a broader perspective, I guess, that way. And, uh, and yeah, so but, but even French speakers, they pick up English because well, English plays almost everywhere else, and, and I think there's that respect for it. So you can walk into a restaurant and, and order in English. It's fine. People speak a lot of what you call Hanglais, right, like Spanglish. It's, it's, you know, this kind of mix of things, and, and like people don't say fin de semaine, for instance. Fin de semaine literally means the end of the week, which means weekend. You say le weekend. There's uh-huh. a lot of words like that, a lot of words like that, which are just kind of – both, you know, they're just kind of, you play around with both languages and you kind of blend them in. You can speak a sentence in a pretty French accent where you're, you know, speaking mostly in English or vice versa, and, and it's no big. And, you know, I haven't lived there since 1997, so it's been a while, but when I go back, 
I kind of gravitate that way. Not so much with my friends, because most of them are majority English speaking, but when I'm out and about, yeah, I'm ordering a beer and, and, and you get a little of both. You just kind of, it just comes out of your mouth that way. And, and, you know, you of course have lived in France, so you've obviously said ducking grounding in that language, and I had been grounding before, but I think you'll find as you're walking the streets, that you just kind of go with the flow. You kind of read the other person and you do it that way. If you're literally ordering cold and, you know, you don't know what the waiter or waitress speaks or whatever, that's your own judgment to make, but you really can't go wrong either way. And I love that about the city. I love that it has this kind of mutt-like quality almost. It's just it's very mixed in, in every way. Uh, and like I said, very progressive. I have to tell you, I mean, you know, this is a slightly tangential, but I can remember growing up, the number of, Couples were just like way out. One French, one English, one uh, African immigrant, one has been in Montreal for five generations. One this, one that. It's just like it, it has always been that way. It was always such an interesting mix of cultures, of languages, of whatever. And I think that's a reputation that New York has to some extent. Although I would argue that if you go to Manhattan or Brooklyn or you know the, some of the more gentrified parts of Brooklyn, they're so predominantly uh, one one set of income mm-hmm. that you might not necessarily get as much in terms of background. Whereas in Montreal, it's different. It's A, it's not nearly as expensive. But B, everything is just so mixed. It's just white collar and blue collar and, uh, you know, this background, that one, and this race and that one, uh, everything. The gay village was prominent going back to when I was a little kid. I can remember in the 70s and the 80s. That was already there. It's just it's just progressive and interesting in, in every way. You're not going there to get the, the really white experience by any means, and I mean that both literally and figuratively. Yeah, and I should say too, uh, and I've been surprised from this, or and uh, have enjoyed like the uh, like for example, if you go to Little Italy in New York, uh, it's not. Yep. It's it sort of feels like going to a Disney World version of Little Italy. Uh, uh, but if you the Little Italy here. Is actually uh, pretty well preserved, and I, I actually got into. Uh, I was able to uh, have a nice conversation with a resident of Little Italy. Uh, his his parents both came from from Italy, um, nice. and uh, he was he was saying that um, perhaps one thing that helped, as opposed to even for example the the Italian settlers in Toronto, one thing that's sort of helped preserve a number of the the languages and cultures in Montreal is the um, is the enthusiasm, which is might be a slightly euphemistic term uh, for the yeah. uh, of the separatist movement, uh, but the enthusiasm for the the sort of French identity in Quebec, uh, which is actually in its way has helped preserve some of the other um, language communities here, because in part because um, the French did not always embrace them. Uh, yeah, that's fair, and 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 it's. Gosh, that's so, I mean, we, we can go further afield. I mean, you know, this is your podcast. I know you like to go different places, but, you know, I, I will give you a slight window into my soul, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead as a, a window, a door, sure. however, yeah. So, 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 here's something. If you grew up Jewish in Montreal, it is a very traditional experience. It's almost a given that you're not going to go to a generic public school. You're probably going to go to a Hebrew school, which is literally you learn Hebrew every day. You're encouraged to marry a Jew, and it's very insular in that way. This is among, this, this is within a society, within a, uh, a city in which everything is mixed. It's decidedly not mixed, so they try to make it that way for you. And I can remember growing up as a kid. This is this point will come around and it will make sense in a second. Mm, you know, I can yeah, remember yeah. growing up as, gotcha. So, growing up as a kid, 
you know, I, I've, I have a billion relatives in Israel, everywhere, the whole country. And there's very, to this day, of course, and really going back 2,000 years, there's an antagonistic relationship between one group of people and another. It's existed always. And we were inoculated, indoctrinated with this idea of our side is right. Our side is right. Their side is wrong. This is what it is. This is what I was taught in school or whatever. And once you start to develop independent thought, which I was kind of a skeptic pretty early, you just realize that it doesn't really play that way, that there are all kinds of different points of view and whatever. And um, I have not been happy with uh, how the Israeli government has gone about a whole bunch of things, the settler movement, uh, the stuff that went down in Gaza and Lebanon, a whole bunch of places. So that's tricky. And, and I, I empathize deeply with, uh, you know, with, with oppressed communities. If you're, if you're a Palestinian descendant, if you're, you're having this very difficult. And so you get that. And, and, but, and I get this whole idea of trying to preserve your identity, you know, from that point of view. But I also, in a perverse way, even though, again, I, I think that the atrocities are unacceptable, a lot of my family died in the Holocaust. Israel was supposed to be this, this shelter for Jews to find a place where you could live or whatever. And it was all about, I need to keep myself safe. I need to keep my identity. I don't want to be assimilated because otherwise we will cease to exist as a people, as a Jewish people, whatever the heck that means, we will cease to exist. So, I'm sensitive to both sides of that identity struggle, and we want to do our thing. We want to live autonomously. We don't want to be oppressed. I get it. You transfer that over to Quebec, where the majority is French, mm-hmm. but in the country and certainly in the continent, it is not at all French at all. I mean, it's, it's not a big part of the culture. And in that sense, I get it. You know, I grew up Anglo. I spoke French. I grew up Anglo, though. And there was a separatist movement, and the separatist movement would have been crummy. Like, economically, it would have been crummy. It just would have been bad in every way. And I was in college when the referendum happened in 1995, but I felt a great deal of empathy, you know, for the other side, for the separatist movement, even though I didn't think that it was logical or rational. To me, a lot of it stemmed not only from political ambition, which was certainly true, but the reason that it had this groundswell of support and lost, by the way, 51 to 49. I mean, you know, Gore v. Bush uh, kind of numbers, really, really close. The reason that happened uh, was because it wasn't just a political thing. It was people believed it in their hearts. They wanted to preserve the culture and their language, and they felt that it was important. And whether you come from an, uh, from the majority view or the minority, uh, certainly if you're the oppressed, and, and yes, despite the fact that atrocities are always unacceptable, even if you're the oppressor, you can at least understand the germ of where the thing is coming from. And, and I got that. And so... You know, when you are walking around and and you are, uh, you know, French-speaking or whatever, and you just say, I want to be pure land, I want to be uh, whatever, pure land just means pure, basically. I want to be only French, this, 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 and I refuse to speak other languages or assimilate or whatever. Or if you're of Italian or Greek descent or whatever, and you're trying to keep your language and not just blend in, despite the fact that you spend all this time ranting and raving about how great it is to blend in, I get it. I get that people want to respect where they come from and that they can feel overwhelmed by the prevailing culture, uh, and by forces against them. So it, it's tricky. There's no easy answer to it. I think the best thing you can do on an individual level is just like anything else, is have empathy for other people and try to appreciate a point of view that's not your own, try to speak a language that's not your own, uh, and just do your best. Honestly, if people were more empathic, I just think the world would be a better place, period. But I think it certainly applies in a place like Montreal, 
where it isn't just one culture, where it's just so many coming together. Yeah, well, I'm curious as to, because the, the notion of the, the separatist movement is one with which I was sort of uh, obliquely familiar as a younger mm-hmm. person. I think you're probably, I think you're maybe five years older than me. I was born in 79. I'm 40. You're 40. Yeah, yeah. I'm born in yeah. 74, yeah. Yeah, so you would, and of course you lived here, so you would have, yeah. uh, for two reasons, have a, a, a more intimate knowledge of it. But I am curious as to what that, how that manifested itself on a daily basis. You you said you grew up uh, just outside the city, but you would come into the city frequently, and you were also of college age when the referendum occurred. I guess to what degree was it, you know, uh, how, how would it have influenced your experience of the city at the time? Was it something where uh, people were were violent about it? Uh, was it uh, more of like a... <laughs> I know that there's obviously a great. I said the word. I used the word enthusiastic before. Uh, I guess I'm curious as just if you were a dude walking around on a daily basis, to what degree it would have been part of your life. Yeah, you know, it was to some extent, but it kind of depended on on where you were. A lot of the stuff that happened, there was a little bit of political kabuki theater going on, and it still exists today. There's something called the uh, Office de la Langue Française, which is just what it sounds like. It's the French. They're trying to enforce French through any means possible, and <laughs> There was something called, depending on whether you're American or Canadian, you either call it Tastigate, like a normal person, or in Canada, and in Quebec, you say Tastigate. People in Canada say Tast, and there are differences. Anyway, Tastigate uh, became this thing where I believe it was Buena Note, which is kind of this chic, upscale restaurant on, on Salem Boulevard, one of the main drags. I've been there. Lovely place. And um, they, on their menu, just had everything listed in English. There's your ravioli and your rigatoni and whatever. And the office said, I long process to a fit and said, no, 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 this is unacceptable. It needs to be bilingual. Your sign needs to be bilingual. And not only that, French needs to be, I think the law is literally the outside signage. French has to be twice the size of English. And people measure, measure this stuff with actual tape measures and will find you, will find businesses if that's not the case. And the thing about uh, this, the thing about the separatist movement and the thing about enforcing all this stuff is that on the day-to-day, if you're a normal, especially if you're a young person, if you're a young person, then it's a given you have lots of friends and you're open-minded and progressive or whatever. But within the business community, it was a disaster. And actually, and I will give a, a brief self-plug because I guess that's what I do, but you know, in my book, I'll pop in a way, which is about the Montreal Expos nominally, a lot of the story is about the city of Montreal. Like, if you're interested, you know, I can't imagine why you're listening. Well, that's I was going to say, can't imagine if you're listening to this podcast if you're not a baseball fan, but in fact, this is a great podcast in that it does cover other stuff. And I think this book has that tinge to it. The first 20 or 30 pages or whatever are about the city, are about what was the culture like in the 60s? Why did it seem come into existence in this place that wouldn't seem to be ideal for baseball in the first place? And then, you know, throughout the book, it's sprinkled with talk of the separatist movement and a lot of the corporate uh, headquarters moving away. The Bank of Montreal, it is literally called the Bank of Montreal, you <laughs> know, is what it's known as now. It is based in Toronto because it moved away because of the separatist movement, because there was a lot of political fear about what would happen if the province truly separated and, and all that. And so it's, it's really the economy that suffered uh, to some extent, and that's not necessarily because separatists are wrong, uh, and it's not necessarily because companies are paranoid. It's probably a little bit of both, I guess. You know, it, it's one of those things where unintended consequences, or maybe intended consequences can happen. If you say, this it can only be this way, you're going to get people to get upset and move away. Uh, and, you know, for people who aren't willing to move away for the slightest threat of something, they're losing out on, on all kinds of wonderful things about Quebec. But the bottom line is that has made uh, the city weaker economically. I mean, it used to be that Montreal was a bigger uh, financial power than Toronto. That's a joke now. Toronto dwarfs Montreal in that way. 
uh, you know, and getting back to sports, where I get the idea of, oh, can we get a baseball team there? Or, gosh, there was even talk way back in the day, there are some basketball fans that say, I wonder if we could try to get an NBA franchise. No, dude, there's no way that's ever going to happen uh, because, you know, the corporate base has been weakened. So what I would say, you know, you're there for a few weeks and you're living in a cool neighborhood or whatever, it's great. I think it's great that people have different points of view and that's all fine. I think that if you were an entrepreneur and you were trying to make a go of it in that city, and let's say you only spoke English and you know you brought about you brought on your five buddies who also only spoke English, you would have a tough time of it and you would consider moving your corporate headquarters to Toronto or Halifax or Cleveland or somewhere that's not much else. So <laughs> it, it depends on the level that you're interacting with with the subject. Yeah, well so uh to that point, oh yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned about the uh, the sort of commerce fleeing, uh, in particular business fleeing, is that I, I know that uh, Berlin, Germany is another city that has had uh, sort of – that has had maybe not as much uh, success commercially or financially, but it is also home to a number of really excellent neighborhoods uh, yeah. and, great, and great restaurants. And it actually, in, in walking around certain parts of Montreal here, I, I um, there's a similar feeling as in certain neighborhoods in Berlin. Probably not. Yeah, I've been. To, I, no, I've been to Berlin, and and I, I I'm with you on that. I think that's right. Uh, where it just plays out that way. I had a friend uh, who went to uh, Montreal just over last. I think it was last week and went for a bachelor party. And mind you, he's only experiencing certain parts of the city. But what he said was uh, the Mile End neighborhood, um, which is wonderful. That's where the, the like the bagels come from, and that's where everybody's immigrant grandparents moved. That's where my grandparents, everybody's grandparents ended up there. And now it's become cool again. It's these walk-ups and whatever, and, uh, you know, these, these uh, you call it farm-to-table. I call it farm-to-hipster bullshit, but I say it in the nicest way possible. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's just, it's just it's, it's these cool restaurants and bars and, and things and whatever, and it's got this gritty feel to it. And he said, this is what, and I, by the way, I like New York, so this is just quoting my friend, but he said, this is what, what New York would be like if I didn't hate New York, which I thought was pretty interesting. It was, you know, that it is a melting pot and that you can eat in cool places and hang out and do this and there are all kinds of artists and, and, and well, it's affordable. I mean, you, struggling. yeah, and yeah, you could afford to buy to get things here. You know, like my wife and I could go out to a restaurant and we don't, like, we don't feel like, I mean, we don't feel like we have to save up to go out to a restaurant, which is the is a feeling that I always have when I'm, you know, if I visit people in Brooklyn or whatever. Well, and rent, right? I mean, right. you could get an apartment in a desirable neighborhood. There are so many different kinds of desirable neighborhoods that you can live in the city proper with a cool place, dare I say a two-bedroom place if that was your fancy, and, and do fine with it. And, uh, you know, so it's different that way. And, and part of that is, you know, because different markets lend itself to different rents, and part of it is a little bit that it's not, that it is economically weaker than it could have been. If this city was more of an economic powerhouse, uh, rents and mortgages would reflect that. So New York and San Francisco are these great cities, whatever, they have a lot of things going for them, but normal people can't live there. You know, it's just impossible. you got to live in the outlying areas. In Montreal, you can't. So something that can seem negative from a distance, if you're a younger person or somebody who doesn't have the most wildly lucrative profession, if you're a writer or whatever, doable. You can get a cool place and, and hang out and do your thing and go out to restaurants and live your life. And I think there's something to that. I like the idea of economic diversity within cities, uh, and I like it within different cities and different countries. I think that that's a, an interesting thing. The world can't only be Hong Kong and London and New York. It's, it's nice to be able to have places where you can actually afford them. Yeah. All right. Uh, three questions. Uh, you are uh, you're a man. You're a professional man. You're, I mean, that's not yeah. your profession, being a, a man, but you are both a professional and a man. So we'll let you um, 
tend to your business matters. But three quick questions before we go. Uh, yep. One, one, there are a number of stairs, external stairs in the apartment buildings here. Like uh, there are a lot of um, – mm-hmm. Um, uh, what are these? The, the circular ones. There's a name for them that's officially used. Yeah, I, I don't spiral know staircases. Them, but you, yeah, sort spiral of. staircases. Yeah, I think it's just one of those quirks that's difficult to explain. Montreal is is a place that's very. Once they have something, they have a hard time letting it go. You don't see that much new architecture. I got to be honest in the city. There's like a lot of the walk-ups are kind of not beautiful, uh, and, and they do have that feel to it with the, with the outside spiral staircases. So I don't have a good answer for you. I will tell you one thing though. Um, it is not ideal for the city because it's freezing cold in the winter and in the summer, and this is another thing about how the city can be hidebound in some ways. It's not a perfect city by any means. Moving day is July 1st. Now, for a lot of people anywhere, that's often the case. Beginning of the month is a good moving day. In the summer, that's about right. That's the end of the school year, roughly. Okay, I get that. But it is, sometimes they move across the street to an apartment that's 1% better, uh, but it means that they have to lug their mattress and their grand piano down this spiral staircase and to the next neighborhood, and over to another place when everybody else is moving, and there are not, not, not enough moving companies. So you see people attaching, I don't know how long you've been in the city, but this is at the beginning of July, but, yeah, you see them with bikes pulling beds and, and weird, crazy people jerry-rigging U-Hauls and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I don't have a good answer for you other than sometimes it's one of those, that's how it's always been things. And although the city is very culturally progressive, uh, and even politically progressive in some ways, in terms of the just the the, the, house, the housing, uh, it is very old-fashioned in many ways. Sometimes in a good way, and sometimes not. In a good way. Okay, uh, it, in thirty seconds, if you can, a minute, definitely a minute. Though uh, this team supported a major league, or this the city supported a major league baseball team for yeah. some time, uh, and yet there's not even there's not a minor league team here. There's not an independent league team here. Like there is one in. Uh, Quebec City, for example, and Trois-Rivières, there's a couple well, of yeah, yeah. Uh, What is the reason there's no minor league team here? I mean, the reason that there wasn't a baseball team in the first place is because they didn't have committed ownership. That was the bottom line. No corporate support, no committed ownership. This wasn't on the fans. The fans used to come when put cockroaches in a person's soup or get a popcorn at the restaurant. That's the simple answer. Is there a possibility it could happen in the future? Yes, because there might actually be committed ownership. There's There are entities like Bell, uh, which is a media giant like at AT&T and, uh, and ESPN had a baby, I guess. And, uh, you know, they behind the scenes, they're talking about putting a serious investment into it. Obviously, the next step is Major League Baseball has to say, cool, cool, we like Montreal, let's go with that, which is a long shot. Um, but I do think that there is a possibility that it could work precisely because real people with real money are interested this time around. Okay. And then last one is uh, how do uh, my wife and I arrange to live here? Uh, you, it's doable. Um, you need to start by having a visa. The key, I think you were saying you were there for a couple of weeks. You can get a visa that keeps you there for six months at a time. Uh, immigration is much easier there than it is other places. One of the ways that you can kind of get around the system to and extend your stay is if you just go back and forth. Like if you spend a few months there, go back to the States for, I think it's like a, maybe a month, I want to say, and then that kind of resets your clock and you can go back. It makes it appear that you're not just kind of squatting. So you can get and kind of get around it that way. But ultimately, if both of you find jobs, then you could just apply through regular means to uh, get whatever. It could be a more extended visa, could be to apply for citizenship. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to do it. It's, it you're there in the summer, uh, which is lovely. The winter is brutally cold. Yeah. But if you can get over the cold, uh, there are all kinds of good reasons to live there. It's a wonderful place. 
you know, I, I really have a warm spot in it for my heart. I, as best as I can be objective, I think that objectively has a lot of I would assume that they would – so I make money from an American company on the yeah. internet. I would assume they would encourage people who make money in the States to just spend all of it in, in, their, in their country, wouldn't they? Yeah, it's like I said, it's, it's a little less opaque than American immigration. It's, it was tough for me to move to the other side. I was marrying an American. I still had all kinds of problems. Um, it is doable. What I would say, you know, and this is not easy, but if you could scrape together a couple bucks, go hire an immigration lawyer. Uh, you know, just for sitting for an hour of sitting with an immigration lawyer, which might cost you $100 or something like that, you can learn a lot about what the process is and how to do it. And ultimately, that, that investment, which, mind you, is a couple of really nice state dinners, uh, can pay off in the form of you get to live there for years. So that's, that might be worth your while to give that a go because uh, there, there are all kinds of ways. And, and, you know, as much as I'd like to say that uh, I am an expert, I am certainly not an expert. I can offer cursory advice, but you could probably do better with a professional. Yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, we're going to go talk to a professional then. Yeah, you should do that. Right, but, I honestly encourage you, and I would love to visit you over there. And uh, go to, by the way, I mean, I know that you know about Schwartz's and St. Peter and some of the big ones. If you haven't been to Heskies, which is C-H-E-S, K-I-E apostrophe S. It is in the Mile End neighborhood, not far from St. Peter and Fairmont Bagels. And if you go there, except on Shabbat, you can't go there Friday night to Saturday night, but otherwise, and you order the mini chocolate vodka, it is the best dessert I've ever had in the world. And I'm pretty well traveled. I've been to Asia and Europe and all these places. I have never had a better dessert than that. And mini chocolate vodka. I mean, Mini chocolate vodka. Then sometimes they call it the mini chocolate Russian vodka. But don't get like the big one. You want the kind of small to medium sized ones with the chocolate drizzle on it. It's so freaking good. You will die of happiness. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I don't want to die right away, but maybe I'll give it to my wife. <laughs> there uh, you go. Um, listen, um, uh, thank you so much uh, for tolerating technical difficulties and also just um, me. Uh, it was great to talk to you. Why don't you stick around just for one second? But in the meantime, thank you so much, Jonah Carey. Thank you, Carson. All right, that has been uh, Montreal native, uh, man of the world, though, uh, and baseball writer for, for Grandline.com, Jonah Carey. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.